Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Manny Saxena. Manny grew up in India and decided he wanted to become a CEO. To prepare for the role, he attended Kellogg's MBA program and built leadership experience at Sears and Persado. Finally, he partnered with Broadtree Partners to acquire two commercial sweeping companies called Contract Sweeping Services and Statewide Construction Sweeping in Northern California. Manny and I talk extensively about the sweeping business, how he's learned the ropes in the sweeping industry from the previous owners, unique businesses he came across in his search, new systems and technology he's implemented in both companies, lessons from his time at Sears, and much more. Enjoy. Do you want to just share a little bit more about your search since that's kind of the start of your journey with contract sweeping and some of the unique companies you've come across? That's kind of what we were talking about before. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that if you want to share. Yeah, I would love to do that. So as most of the listeners probably know here that there are multiple ways to go about searching. 
One is obviously the traditional search path, which is more described by the Stanford primer, where a searcher comes in, raises money for a duration of a couple of years, searches for a company, then buys them and runs those companies. The second one is self-funded searchers or search, which is a lot of people kind of use their own money to search while they're searching and then go after investors to buy the company. I took the third path, I think, which is the just a search for an accelerator, if I might call it that. I worked with a company called Broadtree Partners. It's a group of previous searchers who had started the company and with the idea of bringing together the resources of a larger company to help folks like myself who had a lot of operations background, but not a lot of deal experience per se. So I joined Broadtree in mid-2018 as part of a cohort, which basically meant there were about five other people who joined with me. And the idea of a cohort was that if you had five other people go through the exact same experience as you do, it makes your search life a lot more enjoyable. And as as everyone who's been through a search knows, search can be pretty stressful. There's a lot of ups and downs. One day you have a deal, the other day you don't. One day you move to New York, the other day that you're moving to San Francisco. But having five people kind of go through it just helps you normalize some of the experiences you go through. So I thought it was a great experience working with Broadtree and the five fellow searches, if I might call them that. And I did search out of San Francisco, which I might add is probably the worst place to search because everyone expects a valuation multiple of revenue and not not EBITDA because no one's making profit. But jokes apart, I mean, San Francisco area wasn't the best, but outside San Francisco area, there were still a good number of companies. And Southern California has a lot of traditional companies, which are perfect candidates for a search fund. And my wife worked in tech industry. So we decided that we'd want to stay in California, at least for the time being. I came in with a very strong focus of being in California. And with because of my strong focus in in a geography, I did not have the luxury of choosing my industry as well, which I always feel like if you get the best industry and in the geography you're living in, I think that's a bonus, but it's hard to get to have all your criteria met as well as geography, as well as industry. So ended up going through my search process, reaching out to multiple different industries. Initially, I was a little bit skeptical, but as time went on, I really kind of enjoyed that because you end up meeting all these random type of industries or companies where you realize, as I said before, people make a lot of money doing random stuff. Every now and then you'd meet companies which you'd be like, huh, this is pretty interesting. I bet I could do it. But obviously I couldn't have imagined that or even shortlisted an industry that would have this company fit into those industry buckets I gave you an example earlier. I ran into a company, 10 million revenue. All they did was screws, different types of screws, and they made $10 million doing that, which was just crazy to me, mind-boggling to me that there would be a company that just manufactured screws. And so I ended up going to a lot of different companies and had a few LOIs. A couple deals ended up falling apart at the altar, which was pretty heartbreaking. But I ended up closing two businesses in October of last year. One is called Contract Sweeping Services. The other business is called Statewide Construction Sweeping and have been running the businesses for the past, gosh, it's been, what, eight months and couldn't be happier. And 
yeah, now here to see how best I could give back to the searcher community, which has been so great through my search process and help them out however I can, because there's a lot of things that you need to learn as you go through the search process. And a lot of these mistakes have already been made by searches like myself. So I just wanted to see how I can do that, give back to the searchers. Can you share about your background prior to searching as well? I actually grew up in India and engineer by background, realized pretty early on in my professional life that I was more of a business guy than an engineer. So decided to pursue my business education here in the U.S. Moved to the U.S. in 2012 for my MBA. Went to Kellogg School of Management up at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And did my two-year stint there. And then that's really when I came to know about the search process and search life. I did not have any business background. More specifically, I did not have any business background in the U.S., So really thought I wanted to get some experience under my belt before I start managing or running a $10 million revenue, 100 people organization. So I wanted to go back to general management, which is where I really thought I would add the most value. And I loved being with people and getting people excited towards a common vision or goal. So ended up joining the place where I thought would give me the biggest amount of challenges and a great experience from a business standpoint was I joined the turnaround team at Sears which was pretty interesting because this was a leadership program. So they took you from one business unit to the other. So you'd be in inventory once, the next day you'd be in pricing, the third day you'd be in marketing. Spent a good three, three and a half years there. Ended up being the senior director of marketing of all their underperforming stores, which was again a great challenge because if you hadn't read the news then, a lot of stores were underperforming for Sears. So ended up managing a good number of people there, a large budget. Worked directly in constant touch with the CEO, Eddie Lampert, while I was there. Ended up having the good fortune of meeting a lot of brilliant like leaders there. Made my bones there, really. And I wanted business experience. I got baptized by fire, basically. So I spent a good three, three and a half years, and I started to long for something more. I thought about doing my search then, but I ended up getting... Another offer from one of our vendors. This was a complete polar opposite from Sears. This was a Series C startup funded by Goldman Sachs. This was a company that basically told you through data what you should be writing on your marketing copy. AI machine learning based company. Thought that was really interesting. They wanted me to do sales for them. And I'd never done sales. I was a brown kid in the US trying to make sense of my accent at that point to most people I spoke. But I thought this opportunity was great. I always thought sales is an underrepresented subject in most education institutions. So I ended up taking the challenge on and spent a year building up their sales team, talking to Fortune 500 clients. And at that point, after a year, I did realize that hey, I had the operations background. I had the sales and marketing background. I managed a team by then. So I felt like it was the right time for me to jump into search. And that's when I started to raise my own fund, actually. And then at that point, I met Broadtree folks, and they must have seen something to bring me on board. Yeah, so that's what I did before joining Broadtree. Your Sears experience must have been really interesting. My wife and I, we just moved to Omaha for her PT school, and we were driving to the store, and there's this shopping mall in Omaha with a sign for Sears. And then you look over, and it's this huge construction site with no more building, and it's just piles of dirt and gravel and all this other stuff. Can you talk about some of the challenges that 
you got to experience at Sears and then perhaps some of the lessons you pulled from that experience? There were no dearth of business challenges at Sears. This was a company that was really the shining beacon of success in the early 90s. They were bigger than, or used to be bigger than Walmart back in the day. Nothing that they did could ever fail just because of the sheer scale and sheer size, kind of like the Amazon of today. And then obviously, as times changed, as technology was became more and more prevalent, as companies like Amazon came, I think they just rested on their laurels a little bit too long without changing the way they did business. I think one of the things that kind of for me was eye-opening while I was there was everyone knew what Amazon was doing long before today or even then. But I think the biggest issue was how do you repurpose the assets that you have in the business, which were in those in Sears cases, the number of stores that they have, the physical footprint that they had, which was massive, by the way, and repurpose that to an online only business. So you end up being in a state where a lot of companies and industries kind of go through that, where you want to be close to what your asset base is and not compete with somebody else who is more nimble and whose entire organization is kind of focused towards something that their core strategy is. In that case, you're always, these businesses end up being a confused strategy business, in my opinion, and it's hard for them to either be that or be good at what they do. I think that's what happened with Sears, to be honest. Kmart bought Sears, which was another unsuccessful company, buying this company, Sears, and with those companies together, they didn't really have a winning formula. Another kind of jarring thing for me was at Sears, like many other companies, I guess, but they had business units, multiple business units, and each with their own P&L, which was great because you were trying to maximize the margin for the company and you want accountability. But because you did not have a unified strategy, which each of the business units adhered to, it became kind of more of a changing the chairs in a Titanic type of situation where people were so concerned about their own P&L that they never really worried about the overall strategy. I'll give you an example, like food and drugs. If that's something that I do as a grocery store, that's something that you should use to pull more people in the store. Profit should not be the main criteria. The goal should be for Sears and Kmart that people come in for the milk or for the grocery and then they buy an apparel while they're out there so that you make up your margin in apparel. But there wasn't really like a mechanism for the company to understand that piece either. Those couple things was pretty interesting to me to understand that somebody really needs to be thinking about those things versus just hiring a bunch of smart people hoping that they will kind of work together because incentives is a big thing, as we all know, and they work towards their own. People tend to work towards their own incentives. Those two things I thought just from a company perspective, pretty interesting that I always kind of took, remember to go back. And as I run my business right now, I tend to think about these things because I know no one else is because you're kind of worried about your own kind of three by three. But those two things were really interesting for me. You having the use of repurposing the assets you have towards what you define as the unified strategy. And the second thing is 
figuring out incentives and having the work on the overall strategy and all the different kind of movements in a company to be working towards that unified strategy. Can you talk about the two companies that you acquired and how they relate to each other? And then what would you say is the unified strategy now? The two companies we bought were Contract Sweeping Services and Statewide Construction Sweeping. Contract Sweeping Services is really, we do sweeping for municipalities. So if you, I don't know in Omaha where you live, but if you have parking signs for when the sweepers were arrived to sweep your streets and you need to move your cars for that. So that's pretty much what we do. So we have longstanding contracts with either the city itself or garbage companies or waste hauling companies that have the franchise contract. And we are just part of that franchise contract. And these contracts can run between three to 15 years long. And it's more like clockwork. They give you the map and the exact schedule of what the sweeping needs to look like. And you basically follow that every day, day in, day out. And you basically build the exact same amount of money every month to every customer. So it's a pretty good example of what you and I hear a lot in this world, which is recurring revenue. The second business we bought is called Statewide Construction Sweeping. They are also in the sweeping world, but they are more involved in heavy construction type of work where you need regularly mandated for you to have a sweeper in a construction yard because of the pollution, the stormwater runoff can actually pollute your water table. So you need these sweepers on site for any construction yard. Most of our customers are general contractors who are building roads and highways. So again, coming from the business is kind of essential because roads and highways need to be maintained every year. They are basically mandated to have a sweeper on site, otherwise they can't operate. Literally, we've had instances where they don't have a sweeper, the entire construction site needs to be shut down. So having those kind of interesting kind of dynamics makes this business extremely resilient, COVID-proof, and a high degree of recurring revenue and repeat business, which is obviously great for any private equity slash search type deal that you want to do. You talked about the unified strategy. I think unified strategy is obviously this is a confluence of man, machine, and processes like most businesses. And I think in this case, since we have such a stronghold basically with our customers and with either a contract or a relationship, it's hard to displace us. But at the same time, it's harder to grow as well because our competition also has the same kind of parameters. So one of the ways you want to grow is by expanding to different geographies where we don't have that customer base already built in, either organically or inorganically. We've done a lot of work on understanding the roll-up nature of this business. And we know there's a company out east that have done this successfully called Sweeping Corporation of America. And we want to kind of replicate that model on the West Coast by bringing in more companies in the fold and bringing in a lot more just structure and strength to our home base so that we are able to kind of develop that expansion plan through opening up offices or acquiring new businesses more seamlessly. Can you share a little bit of some of the learnings that you've been learning from the previous two owners about the sweeping world and working with municipalities and how contracts work and all the man machine of the endeavor? Obviously, I came in with basically no knowledge about the sweeping world. 
and it's a pretty niche industry. One thing that I do recommend to most searchers is hoping to have or have a good relationship with your sellers, especially if you're going in an industry where there's just a bigger learning curve than most other industries. And this was that industry. There were two sellers. Both those sellers are in their 50s, so they're pretty young and they have rolled equity. So they had a natural reason and just incentive to help me. But having them on my side was a big help. I think in this world of municipalities sweeping, I think it's about having to run the train and keep the trains on time. That's literally your job, which basically means that the machine should be in the right conditions. You should not be spending a lot of money on overtime. You should not be spending a lot of money on repair and maintenance, the brooms and the tires, just keeping a solid, kind of creating a solid KPI-driven system where you're able to monitor if things are going south. You know, you have a good kind of just an advanced heads up. The owners were really good at just the relationship they had with the equipment manufacturer, the vendors, some of the customers was just great and handy for me to come in. And I think me coming in, we just created a rigorous financial system where all the different managers were empowered to make their own decision and they were kept accountable for their own P&L was just huge. In this line of work, I think for municipalities, this work can have a lot of nuisance value where there are all these residents who, let's say, their side of the street doesn't get swept, which happens all the time, by the way. And there's a lot of funny stories, which we'll talk about some other day, but they just call the city directly and say, hey, the sweeper has not shown up or they were really the sweeper came in, he was really fast or the sweeper didn't do the job right or whatever it might be. And they call the city officials, sometimes even the mayor of the city. So it's a lot of nuisance for not a lot of work. So your customer service needs to be top-notch. The owners had already created that culture, which was just great to have because that's a culture that's hard to change in a company. So even like any municipality customer, when they have an issue, even when it's small, like as small as like, hey, you missed a corner and they email our staff, we have one email address that any customer sends out an email complaint to or issue to, goes to that one email and that email is shared with the entire company, including myself. So I see all the customer complaints And we try and reply within 30 minutes and solve the issue within four hours. That's our goal, which is in the municipality world, without obviously going into too much detail, that's the best customer service that they can ever hope to achieve. And that's why our re-sign rate or when we try and rebid a contract is really high. So unless we are extremely high price, they do want to stick with us because we solve their nuisance value problem and do a great job. You said you wouldn't share many of those stories or just at least leave them (laughs) for another day. Is there at least one you might be able to share that's most (laughs) notable for you? There's this lady in like one of the cities we sweep that is pretty, let's put it in these words, she's pretty attuned to when and at what time does our sweeper show up in her city, for example. Every day, every second day, she has a comment on how we can improve the services. Sometimes she copies the mayor, which is always fun to work around. And everyone in the city and the council now kind of know about that lady. But she's looking out for her neighborhood. and You can't really dock her for that. But it's pretty hilarious. Every third day when, I, when we see her email, 
and <laughs> and you're just like okay so what we have done actually is created like almost uh, what you may call it hotspots for different cities where you just instruct the driver to go that extra mile in helping the streets look clean and whatever the case might be that happens in most businesses and this is ours and there are bigger problems you can have so don't really we just like to sometimes just think about this and make light of the situation and get the work done it sounds like her frequent communication actually worked and is getting a nicer street. Have you ever met her before or offered to take her out to lunch or show her around the company? And <laughs> Yes, yes, we have. So we call her. Our regional management has been in touch with this particular lady multiple times. And we actually sent out chocolates to her for the past like holidays. And she was ecstatic about that. But unfortunately, that has not reduced the number of times she writes to us. So we'll see what we need to do this year. <laughs> That's wonderful. One thing we talked about previously in our call was adding different technology or software tools to your company. You mentioned GPS tracking being one of them. Are there a few different tools or installations of new systems in your company that you might be able to share a little bit about? I think one of the things that many small businesses lack is the addition of technology systems, which a lot of times is because usually the owners, at least in our world, are older. I'm guessing that has some relation to it. And then the other thing is just, it's a lot of work to change like a paper system or like an existing physical system to a technology-based system because people find it hard to change their practices. We talked about the fleet management software, which is basically you put these small pieces of hardware in each of our trucks. And then basically the next day, you know exactly at what point, at which places are these trucks. And you also know not only that, you can also know like when was the broom engaged in these trucks? When was the water started spraying on the trucks? Is the engine turned on versus off? You can set up multiple rules where let's say if the sweeper goes beyond 10 miles an hour it pings you back to the dispatcher or if there is some issue with the machine there's a trouble we call it trouble codes it pops up the trouble codes that this is wrong with the machine so it's been absolutely phenomenal for us even a lot of times when there is a question from the cities on the contract sweeping side that hey did you sweep this area so we just pull up the map because you can go back at where the trucks have been just send them a screenshot of the map itself that basically tells you exactly where the trucks have been. That basically lets you know and at what speed, whether the boom room was engaged or not. That basically tells you whether we did our job as per the contract or not. And that is immensely beneficial for us. We've also started to put in a lot more modules to this system. One of the things that we're doing is called DVIR, which is basically daily vehicle inspection report. So earlier, we had a paper-based system where the mechanics or where the drivers would come in and write stuff that's wrong with their equipment and leave it on the table of the mechanic. The mechanic would come in the next day, look at the stuff that's wrong and try and repair the trucks. Sometimes drivers would call the mechanic, tell them, the driver would note something down, obviously forgets half the things. There was a lot of miscommunication. There was a lot of issues, to say the least. A lot of times the trucks were not repaired and the driver would come in, take the truck and get to a construction site and then realize the truck's not been fixed. So there was a lot of moments like that. So we started putting a system called the DVIR where the driver every day would fill in electronically on his cell phone, just go through a checklist of things that he has to look at, and then also look at things that he needed mechanics attention on. So then the mechanics 
it pops up the same instant as to oh, truck 6072 has this issue. The next day they can come in and actually once they're done with it, they can record the cost and parts that have gone to repair the truck. And also when they're done, they can shoot a notification to the driver, hey, your truck has been taken care of. So that was pretty interesting. We're using preventive maintenance now through that system as well, where for each vehicle, we have a preventive maintenance schedule that we are running, which is immensely beneficial because other time it was just the mechanic would just look at a truck and be like, oh, it's been a while since I've done a preventive maintenance on this truck. And that was not the right way to do it either. So those things have helped us immensely. We're doing other things like we just brought on a software system called AR Collect, where basically it's a accounts receivable collection software where you can automate the reach outs to the customers periodically, depending on how long or how behind they are on payments. Our account receivables has gone down from $2 million to $1.2, $1.3 million in six months. That's like $800,000 of savings, real dollar savings in six months. We put together basically a payable systems as well called Bill.com. It's a company, I think, based out of the Bay Area where people are able to record their costs as they incur them in the company. The credit cards are routed through that. Payments can be made directly through that to the vendors. It links to QuickBooks directly, which is our accounting system. So you have one software for that as well, and that has been great. Now we're starting to get into the CRM. We don't have a CRM system. So if I needed to know like what's the CPI increase, for example, in the city of Palo Alto contract, the stuff that I have to do is literally pull up the contract and there's 90 pages in the contract and try and find where CPI was covered. So we need a CRM system to say the least. So we've been talking with Salesforce and they'll help us with our billing system as well, which was outdated. So we are now embarking on a project with Salesforce and their partners to construct our CRM system and then our billing system, which talks to QuickBooks. So there are all these things that we're doing. I think those things have been immensely helpful. And those are your lower hanging fruits. Those are the things that you have to project manage them. It's a little bit hard to bring it on, but once it's operational, can drive immense benefit, even if it's time save or letting go of like the archaic processes that people had to go through to get things done. And I'm always on the lookout for more stuff like that and can't talk enough about those things, especially in the small company setting. Yeah, it sounds like you've gone through quite a few new system implementations. Is there a few lessons you have for doing a good job implementing a new system into your company that you perhaps got better at as you implement a new system, number one, two, or three? I've definitely learned some lessons. The biggest one being this cannot be a side project, especially in a smaller company. This has to be driven by you. So like you have to hold people responsible versus trusting people to do the right thing because the deeper thing that you're trying to change here is behavior. And unless there's a big incentive to change behavior, it's hard to do that. Especially like I talked about the fleet management software. Our mechanic has never used the computer before. He's been with the company for 40 years. You can't ask him to leave, obviously. He's an asset to the business. You can't ask him to lead without understanding technology because he has five mechanics underneath him. So there's always, you just got to figure out ways to bring people along in that process. So one thing we've done with him is like, we literally, we have another person who's kind of the coordinator between the fleet and the drivers. So we made that position would basically help the mechanics and both the drivers kind of be on the same page to be able to leverage this technology because it was so important for us to be one with this. And we have 
weekly sit downs with the mechanic. We have a fleet meeting now. We never had a fleet meeting before. And I'm holding people responsible by asking them to share the screen of the platform that we're working on and talk about it on the platform versus just calling it out. So things like that has to be done. And it's just a thing that takes a long time to change. But once people do realize that there is tangible benefits to it and the world is moving on, whether you like it or not, it helps. So those are some of the things I definitely found that have been pretty helpful. The other thing I would add is also having people on your team who are good at understanding and or assessing what's a good fit for our business. So for me, like I have a chief of staff who's like a young guy who was at work as an intern with me at Broadtree and is now my chief of staff. He's great with technology and he's very like interested in bringing on new stuff to the business. And he is a great conduit between our operations team and the new softwares and assessing different things that we bring on to the company. Otherwise, I would have to do that job myself as well. It's good to have a champion of the technology as well, which could be you or could be somebody else in the business who everyone can reach out to if they have questions and can sort out problems and whatnot. So those are some of the learnings that I've had, but the learnings have been well worth the benefits we are getting out of this technology push. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of your cost centers are starting to become a little bit easier to manage or perhaps even going down, like you said, with AR. I'd be curious on top line, you, st- you talked about expanding to new geographies as one of your best ways of growing, but are there other ways beyond just expanding to new territory that you could grow revenue, perhaps? Are there any upsell type contracts you can have with cities or any additional services you can provide or anything like that? I mean, with cities, it's tough because it's part of RFP that they bring out and you have the exact scope kind of laid out. So in cities, it's a little bit tougher. But what we have tried to do is try to expand our relationship with garbage companies, waste hauling companies. Like we do City of Stockton. That's a big contract for us that we have. We don't work directly with the city, but we work with waste management and public services. Those are big companies that have 10, 15, 20 years contract and we are just a subcontractor to those companies. So what we're trying to do now is expand that relationship to get us into sweeping in more cities. And we've already got like two major contracts through that relationship that we're starting later this year. The good thing with that is since they already have a pre-negotiated franchise agreement, which is usually at least 12 years, if not more, sometimes 20 years in many cases. So they have done all that heavy lifting for you, working with the city, and then you just basically work with them. And if you give them a great service like we do, they tend not to push us too hard for last dollars that they could squeeze out of us because we are a very small component of their franchise agreement. So their franchise agreement could be $50 million, $100 million. Our contract with them could be like a million dollars for them. So that's one thing that we're focusing on has given us some more stuff that we can upsell to the contract sweeping world. On the state-wide side, I think there is a lot of scope for us to just organically grow our business. So that's why I talk about the CRM system. We've never across both companies have had a salesperson. So we are now in the market to hire a salesperson who calls like the manufacturing yards or ports or parking lots or HOAs because there's a lot of sweeping needed for those types of institutions or those types of places, establishments as well. So that's what we're trying to focus on in the coming months. But again, the good thing of these businesses is since the rest of the business is so stable, there's not a lot of stress to like, hey, I need to grow today. I need to grow today. 
you can take your time a little bit with that because word of mouth also brings you enough more businesses and there are always bids coming out for these cities that we recently won two major contracts, city of Corona down south and city of Hesperia. That alone was a million dollars between the two approximately. For that, we have to now open up an office in Southern California. I'll be down there next week, opening up an office down there. There's a lot of organic growth happening like that. You just got to keep your eyes open. And then on the other stuff where you can go out more proactively, you need to put in the system, which we are doing from a CRM perspective, and then bring in a salesperson to kind of do sales for us. What are the keys to winning a new contract with the city? Unfortunately, a lot of it does boil down to cost or price. But since this industry, just so you understand, is a very, very fragmented industry. So we are the largest player in California already. One of the largest, if not the largest. And you can imagine the industry is billions of dollars worth. We are one of the largest in California. So 90% approximately of the companies in this industry have less than 10 pieces of equipment. So when a big city like city of Stockton, where you might need 14 sweepers, there's only a handful of companies that can actually bid for that contract. So city of Palo Alto is a city that we sweep. We were the only bidder for that contract because it's so big. So scale definitely helps you. And that's why we talk about the role of strategy being a winning strategy in this space. And then a lot of times what I've seen in the recent bids that we've done, where we were not the lowest bid, there was somebody else who bid, but we were still awarded the contract because of our customer service and quality. And also local presence. We have two offices in the Northern California region. I think that was definitely something that was interesting for me to know that they were not looking for, even though we were much more expensive than the other bidder, we were given those contracts. So now I think municipalities, especially in the sweeping world, are starting to realize more and more that it doesn't always have to be about the bottom dollar. That's pretty much from a contract perspective. On a statewide perspective, we have an hourly rate and we are increasing our prices because of you getting better and better quality and service to our customers. And we basically have our customers pay that price on an hourly basis for every job we do. If you think of some of the different roll-up candidates, what would you look for for a good candidate? Do you look for similar equipment? Do you look for route density, something that's within your region? What kinds of things make sense to add on to your current company? I think one of the things that I look at deeply is just the brand of the company. If I'm standing for quality, if I'm standing for better equipment, if I'm standing for great people and hence customer service, I don't want to go buy a company. Because in this space, the quality can be huge. The variance could be huge because you could buy a 30-year-old truck with a guy, father and a son running a business. The father gets sick and then there's no truck to companies like us that take this pretty seriously. So I think that's a kind of cliche thing to say, but... That's definitely something I'm looking at. The other thing I'm looking at is also, to your point, either in our geography, which there are very few companies because we kind of pretty much own the Northern California market, or places where we want to be because it's much easier to buy than set up a shop. You've had to set up shop in Southern California. It comes with a lot of pains, and we're trying to do that. But if you could buy a company down there, that'd be huge for us. The other thing we look at, obviously, is the fleet. Fleet is huge. There's a lot of regulation in the state of California. If it's older trucks, it's a high CapEx business for us. So you don't want to be looking, buying companies and then spending millions of dollars and replacing their fleet. And the last thing I look at is people. Most businesses or any business that I buy, 
we don't have a deal origination team. We don't have a company integration team. It has to be the companies we buy, they have to do the legwork of integrating the company along with the existing people we have. So we're looking at a couple of companies pretty seriously right now. And on both those companies, the people are just great. And I would love for them to, and they both agreed on sticking on with the company and helping the company grow further and take on leadership positions within the company. So those are some of the things that you look at. Obviously, I'm not talking about all your usual suspects as to what the recurring revenue is, if revenue is going up or not down, margin, things like that. I'm not talking about that. Those are kind of obvious things you look at. Those things that I mentioned are more kind of just more subtle, more qualitative things that we look at. What makes you the most excited for the next year? I think it would be the things that I've talked about, like opening the Southern California office. There's a lot of work in Southern California that we can potentially go after. And then hopefully within the next one year, we would have acquired at least one, if not two companies. And then being able to expand the number of offices that we have, expand the scale, which helps with a variety of things in our business, and maybe go out of California to see if you can go to Arizona or Nevada. That could be pretty interesting as well. So those are some of the things that I would love for us to have done. And then I do want to set up a solid foundation. We are working a lot on that. IT systems is part of that. Hiring the right kind of people, having a CFO. We don't have a CFO yet. Having the right structure for the regional management. Basically being able to come up with the basic building blocks of growth is what we're trying to build up in the next few months to a year. Moving into some closing questions, what class would you teach in college if you could teach about any subject you wanted? That's a pretty interesting question. I thought about it for a second when you had actually sent those over. The thing that I would be most passionate about, like I'm a pretty heavy engineering guy, so I love physics, chemistry, and maths, but I think that is already being taught pretty well in most schools. But the thing that I don't think is being taught as well in here in the U.S. or back in India is really financial literacy. I feel like that's something that every person guaranteed would need in their lives. You may not need geometry, but you would definitely need a financial literacy to some extent. Even if you're making $20,000 a year or you're making a million dollars a year, you would still need that. And I think it's very, very underserved. And it's definitely something that I would love to teach because I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about making people financially independent passionate about making people realize that, hey, the $6 Starbucks coffee cup that you just bought, if you could invest that in a S&P 500 index fund every day of your life, how much would that end up being? Like Things like that are pretty eye-opening. I think people know that. If you tell them, they probably know this. But the benefits of keeping people disciplined and getting and reaping the rewards through that would be pretty rewarding for me as a teacher. So we'll have to do that. What belief do you think you've changed your mind on the most that you've used to hold strongly? I think that one was definitely, again, I came in through the sciences and engineering, math, physics, chemistry. I valued IQ to be a lot. You can solve equations or you're just so fast in math or arithmetic or whatever the case might be. But as I've grown in life, as I've taken on more leadership positions, I feel like you're EQ is way more important in most jobs, I'd say, than your IQ, whether it's anything, sales or marketing or HR, or even running a business. I use my EQ way more than I use my IQ, to be honest, in running a business. 
So I definitely feel like that's something that came as a, not surprise, but came as a realization. And I've actively tried to invest in making me a better leader through developing my EQ across different domains and ways I interact with people. So I definitely feel like that's something that I didn't really appreciate as much growing up in India as I do here, working and doing my job here in the U.S. How are you investing in developing a better EQ? There's a lot. How much time have you gotten for that? I think the core of that is understanding or just being patient and listening. I think that's huge. Like if I had to give one tip is to improve your EQ is just to listen more. And then also invest in yourself where you can be patient and you can be empathetic through working on your inner self more than your outer self, which is, again, a pretty loaded phrase. But things like meditation, things like taking a break and just observing your breath for a few minutes, slow whatever you're doing, slow that down a lot, break down bigger problems into smaller problems are some of the things you do to make yourself much more a better leader and having a better EQ than IQ. Those will be some of the things that you're doing. And then just being introspective. If a situation does go bad, you kind of look at it later and think about how you could have reacted differently and how the other person felt when you said something, being open for feedback when somebody's giving feedback. But again, to be introspective as it comes back to you being patient and listening. That's kind of the core of it all. I think those are some of the things I've done repeatedly for many years now. And that I feel like from an ROI perspective, coming back to business has given the biggest bang for my buck in terms of improving myself versus the 10 like accounting and finance classes I've had over the years. What's the best business you've ever seen? There are many businesses I've seen, which are pretty interesting. I like my business a lot as well, but there's some businesses where you're like, I don't know how it will fail like Amazon and Salesforce are some prime examples. But if you talk about a small business, I was into the security businesses a lot. Companies that provided security solutions to different customers. I saw one company that did the whole security system for the Bureau of BEP. I think it's called Bureau of Engraving and Printing, basically the place where they print money. So they did basically the security infrastructure for that. And that runs 24-7. It doesn't like stop at night or anything. And all the security team is kind of trained on that system. And it was done in the 80s or 90s. The company that did it really understood what they did. So every time they have to upgrade the system, they have to bring in that company to fix it. And if they ever had to change it, they would literally have to rip out cords or whatever it might be in the BEP, like place where they print money, the mint. So it was a pretty sticky business, to say the least, I'd say. And it was a lot of money. I think it was like millions of dollars worth of contract. They obviously had a concentration problem. But if you had to buy a business with a concentration problem, that would be it. That was phenomenal because they had the same contract from the 80s till now. And they've obviously made like millions of dollars through that contract. So is there a reason you didn't buy it? I think there were other things that kind of did not go through with us from a price consideration perspective and things like that. That's why we didn't end up buying it. And that was a business much better fit for a strategic than a loan, loan searcher, I think. But it was a phenomenal business model. I would love to have a business like that. Yeah, sure sounds like it. I bought the second best business where I have a 12-year contract with the city of Stockton where I just got to sweep the exact same street multiple times in a year and hope 
just make sure the machines and drivers are working on time. That's all I got to do. Yeah, you definitely lucked out. Well, thank you so much, Manny, for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun to have you and learn about street sweeping, which is a business I've not had on the show before. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing a little bit. No, thank you so much. And Alex, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I think this is definitely a great platform for people to come and share ideas about an industry. And when I say industry, it's the small business world, not just sweeping or something else, which there's not a lot of press or coverage of this industry. And I think there's, as you know, there are trillions of dollars of wealth that is going to be transferred from the baby boomers to the next generation. So there's a lot of opportunity here and not a lot of eyeballs. I'm glad you're doing this. And thanks again for having me on your podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. 